Hello and welcome along. Well done, you found us. This is Show Talk, James Watt in conversation, where I talk to the big stars of theatre, music and comedy. And it don't get much bigger than this, to be honest. All right, why not have a good conversation with music legend... Uh, Cliff Richard on the show today. Yeah, the actual Cliff Richard. Uh, spoke to him a lot about uh, about his music, really, uh, and about his early influences and the big hits of his career. I think you're going to like it a lot. Uh, and don't forget, subscribe away uh, if you would like to. Because you never know who's going to pop up. But today, it is Cliff Richard on the James Watt in Conversation Show Talk podcast and here it is. This is what happened when uh, I met Cliff. Hello, Cliff. James, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Let's start at the very beginning, Cliff. And uh, well, I guess it was uh, Elvis where it all started for you, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. There's no doubt about it. Elvis was probably the biggest inspiration for me and for thousands of us. And some of us got lucky, like me. And we managed to get a career. But America is always going to be the, the fatherland of rock and roll. It's where... You know, when we first heard Elvis and Little Richard, they, they, they seemed to have come from another planet. Yeah. And they were so different to Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby and people like that. Do you remember the first time you heard Elvis Presley? Oh, yeah, I do. Uh, so, um, little gang of friends of mine, of, of mine we were walk, walking around in a little street in the hometown in Hertfordshire, and a guy pulled up with quite a nice-looking car. I think it was a Citroen, one of those old Citroens that yeah. looked like the spacecraft. And he rushed into a news, news agent, probably to buy paper or cigarettes or something. His windows were down and the radio was on. And we heard, since my baby left, it was Elvis singing Heartbreak Hotel. We didn't know, though. And before we could hear anything else, the car, he got in the car, zoomed off, and we, did, we didn't know. Three or four days later, a friend of mine, a school friend of mine, came around and said, I know who it is. And he'd heard it on, um, it was a... Uh, American Forces Network, which came from Germany. Yeah. You know, in those days we used to have those little tiny radios and we could pick up things like that. And he said, it's a guy called Elvis Presley and it's called Heartbreak Hotel. Well, we were out there saving up our pocket money, buying the record, buying the albums after that. It was just a wonderful time. It was so exciting. And of course, hot on Elvis's heels um, was all the other stuff, the Little Richard and the Buddy Holly and the Everly Brothers, Ricky Nelson. Mm. Terrific. Because Elvis was a major influence to you, of course, but uh, uh, to us, Move It came into the charts in 1958. Do you remember your first time when you had chart success yourself? Yes, I mean, I remember that period really well. Apart from the record being in the charts, um, you know, a couple of records later, um, I remember reading a headline that absolutely blew me away. I, I never dreamt that this could happen to me. But it said, Elvis and Cliff battle it out in the charts. And I'm thinking, oh, I could not believe that there I was. I'm, they're speaking about me in the same line as Elvis. So it was a fantastic feeling. And when the record got to number two, I mean, I can't tell you what it was like. It's impossible to try and express that all your dreams, all your fantasies that you thought could never possibly come true came true and it felt even bigger and more exciting than i could have imagined it was a fantastic time did it seem to arrive very quickly your success it well went... in, in many ways it did obviously people did used to hang around pubs and bars and sing and try and make some cash and had a desire to sing but once i made the record i got lucky again a man called jack good was doing a tv show called oh boy and he had me on his show with move it and 
it, it was a big, big plus because I came out there. I, I, they all started calling me Britain's answer to Elvis. I mean, there is no answer to Elvis. It's not a question. There's no question about it. But anyway, it was nice to be said, okay, well, he's the answer to Elvis. And the record shot to two. It was a very, very quick thing. A lot of people wait years before they have a big success. Movement was my first record, and I only had to wait for my fifth record uh, to get my num first number one. That was Living Doll. Well, Living Doll, it's a, it's a, it's a, a, everyone knows Living Doll, and that had a second life yeah. with comic relief about 30 years later or something like that. Uh, it was 27 years later, and they were doing the, you know, the Red Nose Week, the comic relief, and uh, they said, we want to do a, a, a video and a record. I said, oh, okay, fine, and, and, and we did another million seller. It was incredible. So 27 years after it was number one, it was number again and sold just as many records. <laughs> there are many records that, that are iconic to you, and, and you've done so many. Uh, you can do your life through records, the CDs, the, the records that you've made. Summer Holiday and the movies. Uh, how did that change your life? Well, it changed it quite, quite a lot, really. I mean, I never planned to get in the movies. I never thought about movies, even though I'd been to see Elvis in movies. But having had one fantasy and dream come true, I wasn't expecting much of anything else. Um, but as soon as Living Doll, you know, Living Doll came from a movie. And within two months of having made the record and have it chart, move it, the record company company said there's a film company that want an up-and-coming singer to be in their movie and, and I guess I was the up-and-coming singer so I did a, a film called Serious Charge and in it was uh, written for me by Lionel Bart was Living Doll and when we decided to record it though we had to change it because it was a sort of pseudo rock song and Bruce Welsh says look if we're going to record this let's do it in a better way and we, we just he strummed it and it became like a sort of country pop song and, and, of course, the rest is history. People liked it that way, and, I, and we preferred it that way, too. So, yeah. very lucky again. You know, being in the right place, right time, does mean a lot in this world. And it's never stopped. Have you, have you always th thought it's going to continue? Or has there always been, was there a point you thought, oh, this might be the last hit? Well, at the very beginning, you know, all of us were written off as either one-hit wonders or a, a clever dick phrase was, here today, but gone tomorrow. Yeah. And so, in a way, after a couple of years, you start thinking, oh, maybe they're right, you know. But fortunately, you know, the Shadows and I continued to have hits. I, I introduced them, recording-wise, I brought them into Nori Paramore and said, you've got to hear my band, because he didn't let me, he wouldn't want, he didn't, first three records, I think, were without the Shadows, because he couldn't trust that the amateur band could be any good. <laughs> and I said, you have to hear them. And he heard them. And from that moment onwards, I recorded with nobody else until they broke up. So uh, it, the Shadows started having hits on, on their own. And between the two of us, we pretty well controlled the charts. Uh, but then the Beatles came along and the three of us controlled the charts. <laughs> but it was a fantastic, it was a fantastic time. And, uh, and I'll, I'll always look back with great pleasure at that time. You've done many gigs over your years. Uh, what, what are the standout gigs that you've done that you thought... Wow, this is pretty special. I always forget where it was, but there was a show. There was a show. We were flown in by helicopter to do it. The Shadows and I, the Beatles. Uh, yes, Paul, Paul McCartney was on. Pink Floyd was playing. Uh, Status Quo was on. It was a big open air function, way north of London, and it, it, there were a quarter of a million people. I have never, I've never sung to so many people <laughs> live on stage before, and El Elton, Elton was on as well. So, where, where was it? I, um, 
It may come to me before yeah. we finish, and if it does, I'll scream out the name. But it was a fantastic one, absolutely fantastic. But I think my favorite place to play is still the Albert Hall. It's smaller, you know. You're talking about an, an intimate 5,000-seater, but there's something prestigious about being uh, in the capital city and playing at the Albert Hall. It's a, and it's, it's almost in the round. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know if you've been yeah. there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Building. yeah. The stage is at one end, but you still feel as though you've got to, In fact, I do. I, there's people sit behind you, too. So I quite like the atmosphere of that. But, you know, that, that particular concert um, that I, I mentioned was very exciting to be with all those huge names, all British, mostly yeah. all British. I, said, I don't know if there were any Americans. And it was just a, a very proud moment for me to get on that stage. You're listening to James Watt in conversation with Cliff Richard. You you did represent Great Britain in the Eurovision Song Contest with congratulations. Yeah, 1968, I got the chance to do it, and I thought, well, why not, you know? And then um, we, I had six songs, and I sang each song on Scylla Black's show each week, and then on the seventh week, I did all the songs in her show. She had a, almost a night off, just introduced things. <laughs> and, and the public picked congratulations. I mean, I could see that it had a chance to win. It, it's, it's not, I don't think it's the best song I've ever recorded by any means. But, you know, look, I go to a restaurant sometimes, and there's a table there, and they're all singing happy birthday. When happy birthday's finished, they all burst into congratulations. So I'm connected to a song that's become like happy birthday. Everybody in the world seems to know it and use it to say, wish people happy anniversaries and things. So I, I'm very happy about it. And, and it turns out that even though I didn't win, I may well have won. There's a documentary maker in Spain, and apparently they have evidence that... Um, and there was a certain skullduggery going on, and I could well have won, but a couple of juries, it's alleged, were paid off. So I live on that, because in the end, you know, in the end, Spain won a wonderful girl called Maciel. I know her. She's an absolutely terrific, delightful lady, very elegant lady. And she won. She beat me by one point. Wow. I outsold her in Spain. That year, Congratulations became the fastest-selling pop single in the history of Spanish records. That could have been broken by now, but at that stage, that proved a lot to me. And so, even though my name will never be down as winning Eurovision, I think I probably did. In the late 70s, early 80s, you had a, another major resurgence into chart success, and We Don't Talk Anymore, an iconic song yeah. for you. Yes, it's been the biggest selling single that I've ever released. It was a worldwide hit. And uh, again, you know, I, Alan Tarney, who wrote the song, um, was in my band, played bass for me. And, uh, you know, and, and the guy that wrote Devil Woman for me, Terry Britton, and also did a whole album of stuff with me, he was the guitarist in my band. And I, you know, they used to play me their songs, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to keep them in my band. I have to be prepared to lose these guys, because they've just got something else to do. <laughs> and... But they've stayed in touch with me and they've written for me and both of them have produced some of my biggest hits and so we don't talk anymore was one of Alan's and uh, I'm really grateful the fact that I not only knew them but they're friends and they're great writers and, and gave me first choice and uh, wired for sound in the same sort of era as well that was there was it was a, a very much a song of that moment wasn't it it was absolutely yeah, dead right. Again, Alan Tani wrote that one for me, and we did an album called Wired for Sound. We Don't Talk Anymore came from an album that, in fact, Terry Britton produced most of the tracks. 
which was called Rock and Roll Juvenile. We hadn't planned to do that Alan Tarney song on it, but they arrived, Bruce Welsh and Alan Tarney arrived at the studio while we were recording this other album and said, what do you think of this? And I said, fantastic, save it, we'll do it on the next album. He said, no, we've got to release it now. Terry and I looked at each other and we thought, well, okay, it is a big hit. We put it on the album and of course it was the big hit single. Where do you live? Because you've got houses everywhere. I do have houses everywhere and I, I live everywhere, really. I, I tend to send the, spend the summers in Portugal. I go to Barbados in the winter. And then I travel around, I do tours, and, uh, and I like being in America, I enjoy being, I, I go there to record as well. But, uh, so I spend, I spend most of my life traveling around, to be honest with you. But I live everywhere. I mean, I, the houses I have feel like home. I'm a very fortunate man in that I've got, I wake up in the morning, no matter where I am, I'm in London as I speak to you, and I'm looking out the window thinking, oh my God, how did I ever get to be right smack here in London looking at a fabulous landscape of Canary Wharf? And, and it's, uh, it's fantastic for me. I, I'm, I am a very fortunate person. My, my career and rock and roll gave me a life that I could only dream about when I was at school. Yeah. You know, listening to Elvis and people like that, I never dreamed that I would, I would actually have a career of my own. But, you know, it happens, and sometimes there's a certain amount of luck involved, but the thing about luck is you have to recognize it and then grab it by the throat <laughs> and don't let go until something happens. <laughs> I mean, just about 50, over, well over 50 years, you've been, uh, you've been in our hearts and you've been singing songs to us. Uh, do you remember the first time you ever heard your song on the radio? Oh, yeah, I did. It was Move It, of course, and... Um, I mean, the, the first time I ever heard my voice on, on anything was in the recording studio. And I, I can't tell you because in those early days, we didn't have multi-tracking. So we had to do it live. And then they'd say, do it again, do it again, so maybe four or five times. And then they said, come up and listen. And we'd go up and I heard my voice coming out of the speakers and I could not believe it. It's the most strange thing. And, and I still find that probably in the whole, in the whole of my career, in the industry itself, the thing I've enjoyed most is recording. I mean, just using all that expensive equipment and having your voice come out at you, changing things if you've sung badly and something or mispronounced something, it's just the most fantastic, uh, very creative part of our industry. So I can remember hearing it. It was on, it was on BBC, and it was... Uh, I can't remember what show it be, though, but I remember... In those early days, our records, us, we rock and rollers, weren't, we didn't take over. You know, I was played in, beneath, in between Frank Sinatra and yeah. Max Bycraves, <laughs> a comedian, you know. So everybody got airplay. And uh, I remember hearing it thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe this is, this is me. And when you think about it, you know, I made that first record when I was still only 17. I was 17 and a bit. So I'd only left school for a year. Wow. And there I was listening to myself on the radio. Now you've been everywhere, done it. You've you've got numerous T-shirts, Cliff, as we know. <laughs> okay, what is there? Is there anything you'd like to do? Anyone you'd like to play with that you've still got, or oh, would love to do that still? Well, I mean, I'm always hearing songs by the other people and think, oh, I wish I got that first. And uh, I still would love to try and sing with someone like Mariah Carey. You know, you're talking about someone who's got um, Mariah Carey must have about a four octave voice. Yeah, I think I've got half an octave. <laughs> 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 but uh, just to, just to blend because I sang with uh, with Sarah Brightman and uh, I, I might be able to work with her again uh, we've talked about it um, I loved recording with uh, uh, sang, singing with Elaine Page I'd, I'd love to do something with her 
But, you know, when you come to think of someone like Mariah Carey, uh, she's made these huge hits and, and it would be the most unlikely coupling for oh. her and, and I to get together and sing. And that always appeals to me. I mean, I feel that when I sang with Sarah Brightman from the, the song All I Ask of You, which came from Phantom of the Opera, the Andrew Lloyd Webber show, I thought this was an impossible c- connection. How am I going to... I'm a pop singer and she's a, you know, a light operetta, a light opera singer. And, uh, but... It worked. It joined. At least you know which one was the bloke. <laughs> and are, 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 you, are, you still, are you still doing the Cliff calendars? Because they've become an institution. Yeah, they did. But a couple of years ago, I went through a couple of bad years, and I didn't feel like being photographed all the time. So I, I, we've released a couple of album, album, um, calendars. A cross between a calendar and an album is a album. Yeah, all right. So yeah. I've had an album... I had an album and a calendar around at the same time. <laughs> and uh, I was so, so proud. My calendar did go to number one. Now, I need you to ask me who was number two. Who was number two? Go on, who Justin was? Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I looked at that. I laughed so much. I thought, I thought to myself, how can this be happening to me? It's just impossible, you know. Wow. And of course, funnily enough, Justin Bieber, Justin Bieber and I have quite a lot in common. But in that he started at the age of about 17, and I'd made my first record at 17. It's funny how, when you think about life as it goes on, nothing really changes. Three big hits at Christmas time, uh, started with Mistletoe and Wine. What was it like when you first got a Christmas hit? <laughs> it was really exciting because, you know, that time of the year, it's really tough to get into the charts, let alone get to number one, because I don't know about if it's true now, but certainly way back, certainly 10 years or more, 15 years or more back, you, sell, you sold more records between October and December than the rest of the year combined. And it's because everyone's building up for that Christmas festivity and buying things to give away to people that it was a tough market. Everybody and their mother and their grandmother released records. It was fantastically competitive, and it was fun, real fun. So to get to number one... It meant a great deal to me. And the, I think people think of me as Christmas and number ones, but you know what? I can only remember three Christmas number ones, and one of them wasn't even a Christmas song. It was a song uh, Bruce and I wrote called I Love You, and it was number one at Christmas in 1962, I think. Then, of course, I had Mistletoe and Wine, and then there was Saviour's Day. Okay, I released Little Town, but it was, it was number eight. Yeah. I released a couple There of was other songs Millennium like, uh, Prayer, we thought of as well. Millennium, well, Millennium, Millennium Prayer was a number one, you're right. And although it wasn't a Christmas song, it was, it was more a Millennium theme. Uh, and it had a kind of, there was a religious connotation, but only that it was a prayer. I couldn't believe that some radio stations and some DJs refused to play it. And I'm thinking, why? It didn't mention Jesus, it didn't mention God. But it was saying, let's pray for a future, that we can be forgiving to each other, that we can feed each other. Um, and I couldn't quite figure out why not the best record I've ever made turned out to be one of the most controversial hits I've ever had. It, it was the least enjoyable hit, to be honest with you. I, I, I didn't like it that people found it so disturbing. I'm, I'm, I, I suppose it tells you more about them than it does about me. Yeah. Anyway, it was a difficult one. And now, of course, I, I've learned to live with that fact. And I think a lot of people must look back and think, why? Why did we ban this innocuous, rather nice theme song? How do you spend Christmas nowadays? Oh, it varies, really. Um, about two or three, I, I spend my time with friends, usually. I come to New York for Christmas quite often. Um, I like it's a, it's, I, I brought my sisters here once for, to, for a Christmas present buying time, and it was just 
really fantastic. They, everything seems to be lit up here. They treat it with great respect, and there's a, it's a very Christmassy effect, so I like coming here. Uh, I, I don't spend a great deal of time in England. I, almost, I reside in Barbados and, um, and, and work, and I try and split my time up between the places on the planet that I really enjoy and can work in. Cliff Richard, uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, no, my pleasure. Thank you for your interest, and it's great to have this help. Thank you so much. And there we have it, Cliff Richard, uh, James Watt in conversation, show talk. Uh, subscribe away, because you never know who pops up here from time to time. We just surprise you every now and again. I uh, want to contact the show, uh, hello at jameswattuk.com, or just at jameswattuk will kind of work uh, on uh, social medias as well. Uh, tell your friends, and uh, I'll catch you again very soon. Have a good day.